Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good day, wonderful podcast family. What a privilege and honor to be with you. As always, I hope that wherever you are, you are doing amazing. We've got a tremendous episode for you today. We have Native American Brian Francis on. He is a filmmaker, a documentarian, and we explore quite a few interesting topics in this podcast. We talk about some of the origins of the uh, British and French coming over and meeting the Native Americans. We talk about treaties. We talk about spirituality. We talk about the doctrine of discovery. We talk about seven-generation thinking. We talk about natural law versus legislative law. Legislative law. And uh, it's really interesting because this applies to us today and especially to Native Americans. So uh, a potential solution for language immersion um, to to keep the um, Native American languages alive because it's a very important part of their history. We also talk about uh, the atrocities committed by the residential school system. So there's a lot of history, but there's a lot of uh, very interesting dialogues on a lot of different subjects. So I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. If you want to support, please take a screenshot, share on Instagram, uh, share on Facebook. Shares go a really long way. Um, Leave a review in iTunes if you haven't yet. That really helps as well. And uh, thank you so much to all my supporters on Patreon. You go to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair and toss a buck in the bucket. It helps immensely. And I want to thank Catherine Marsh who made a donation on PayPal. It's very rare that that happens and I very much appreciate it. So thank you so much. It makes this uh, a little bit easier to to do these podcasts with a little bit of help from you guys. So thank you guys so very much. Um, but the best thing that you can do uh, to support the show is one kind act today. Uh, do one, Pay it forward. Uh, say something nice to a stranger. Uh, write somebody you haven't talked to in a long time. Just be a good human being out there. It's the best way to support the show. I want to thank my podcast sponsor, the Himalaya Podcast app. They're amazing. They're designed and curated for the podcast listener in mind, your listening experience. So they're free. They're easy to use. It's a great way to discover new shows. And when you're over there, make sure to give the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit show a follow. And you can find them at H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A at the the, uh, app stores. So that's about it. Uh, For those of you guys who are interested in coaching and speaking and in training. If you want to learn more about the programs that I offer, the coaching for organizations, for individuals, for speaking, anything like that, um, just make an inquiry at matt at zenathlete.com. Obviously, there's a wide variety of topics I can cover, um, and I'm happy to work with you one-on-one. It is something that I'm doing more often because it's a lot of fun, um, and I've just been developing more programs for what you guys have been asking for. So um, if you're interested in any of that, matt at zenathlete.com, and we will uh, we'll get down to business and we'll we'll have lots of fun so i think that's it let's get into this incredible episode and before we do let's just come into a powerful state of peace and coherence so wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath set the intention to come to peace and coherence and empowerment let that breath out slowly filling every cell and every muscle and every fiber of your being with peace contentment power empowerment positivity and ready to 
take on this amazing episode with Brian Francis. Hello and welcome to the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is of Elsa Booktuk, First Nation in New Brunswick, and is currently involved in filmmaking as a producer, director, and writer. His major concern is the survival of the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet people and the preservation of their culture. For some years, he managed the Aboriginal recording artist Eagle Feather. Most recently, he worked on the development and production of the APTN series Eastern Tide and more recently, Wabanagig. He has found that the practicing of traditional native ceremonies has been a powerful, positive influence in his own life and is motivated to help share this practice and the teachings that go with it to other people. Aside from this, he is a devoted father, a community activist, a spiritual practitioner, and a crab and lobster fisherman in the Northumberland Strait of the Bay of Fundy. Welcome to the show, Brian Francis. Good morning, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, we've we kind of met um, through David and uh, the Star Teachings community, and uh, we've kind of gone a little bit back and forth, and I've uh, learned a little bit about your work and uh, what you're up to in the world. You've actually done quite a bit looking at your resume, and um, you're a little bit of a, a quiet person. You, you stay reserved, so I appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing a little bit about your work and your views because I think they're important. Um, do you want to give the audience just a little bit about uh, a background on who you are and uh, what you're up to? Sure. Um, my name is Brian Francis. That's what they call me. And I'm from a community um, in New Brunswick called Ozibuktuk. Um, it's, a, it's a First Nations community. Uh, we have about probably 3,000 people uh, on our reserve. Um, in, the, in Atlantic Canada, we have about 30,000 uh, Mi'kmaq uh, remaining in uh, 30 different communities. Um, and basically, um, that's, that's where I'm from. Uh, I was born and raised here. I haven't really left. Um, and a lot of our people are like that. We tend to uh, stay where our roots are. And, uh, so that's basically who I am. I've, uh, I recently, I guess not recently now, um, I got into music production a few years back and, um, that really, uh, that really kept me busy for a while. And then, uh, when APTN come out, came on board in, uh, I think it was 2000, it was sort of like a natural progression for me to, uh, to go from, uh, producing music to producing, um, television documentaries um, and mostly I, I I guess 95% of my work is is in the language um, uh, and about our people I kind of um, made it a mission to I guess to bring our stories to the world rather than having the world come to us it was easier for us to bring it to the world with technology and um, I try to share like positive stories about our, our elders, our artists, our craftspeople, our musicians, that type of thing. More like an anthology series about about our people, and uh, I, I find people uh, really enjoy that. Excellent. Well, you kind of uh, 
I think you downplayed it a little bit because I was able to look at your uh, filmography and all the things you've worked on it. It's quite a bit. And um, so, so my question, I guess, is we spoke a little bit at the beginning just about the preservation of the culture. And I've read a couple of your articles and they're really important and really powerful. And I think that it's not common knowledge. All the, the people have an idea, you know, that, okay, um, something happened. It probably wasn't great. Um, but from your perspective, can you speak a little bit on why you feel like preserving the language uh, is important? And it's a stupid question, but like the culture, like, you know, how, how, maybe that's an, a more, more important question. How do we pre preserve the culture and the language and the history and what happened? Maybe you could speak about, you know, everyone kind of knows, but from your perspective, what was kind of the timeline of what happened to kind of, um, let's say just, just destroy it. There's no easy word for that. Well, um, I guess uh, as a young person growing up, I really didn't realize what our elders and <clears throat> uh, my father, especially, um, they, what they were talking about. And growing up in our community and in our house, household anyway, um, our father always instilled in us about who we were and how important it was. Uh, to know who we were. Um, he talked about treaty rights. Uh, at that time, it was, uh, I guess, it, we, we were referred to them as Indian rights. Now, now we say it's Aboriginal and treaty rights. Um, and he talked about them every day uh, on, at the supper table. And as a young person, you don't really um, grasp, I guess, what, what they're saying. But only uh, later on in life did I realize what he was doing and what he was saying. And um, we look at the plight of our people here in Canada and, and, and in, in North America, I guess, um, the history that happened. And we begin to understand and, and, and what he was telling us, he was basically giving us the information that we would need for the future. Um, he'd always say, if there's ever an, if there is a, ever an argument about the land, about who you are, about your rights, he'd always say, go back to the treaties. The treaties protect um, who we are, what we are. And so our rights never really came from the treaties. They, they were just, the treaties only protected them while they were supposed to. <clears throat> Um, the treaties were signed in the uh, early 1700s. Um, basically, in the East Coast, they were uh, what they referred to as peace and friendship treaties. So when the French arrived, um, I guess in 1604, <clears throat> um, they, came, they, they came for furs and fish, and, and they kind of came... Um, I guess in the spirit of friendship, I guess. And um, there was never a, a, there was never a, I guess a fight with the, with the French. Um, and they, they lived, they, they came ashore and they lived in, in harmony, I guess, uh, after uh, our people, the Wabanaki people, um, helped them survive the first winters. Um, so they, 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 and they still talk about it today. Like they, they, they really 
um, uh, thank the, 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 the Wabanaki people for their help in, in helping them survive. Later on, the, uh, the British arrived and um, they had a dispute with the French and I guess it was over the land and the resources. Um, the thing that they, they assumed was that the French had already conquered the people that, that lived here. When in fact they didn't, they 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 basically just uh, uh, asked if they could uh, live here and 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 live with us, and and that's that's how it was. <clears throat> so when the British basically, I guess they, for lack of a better term, when they won against the French, um, they assumed that the land came with it. Um, the Mi'kmaq and the Maliseet and the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, kind of had different. Um, understandings, I guess, because we had never fought for the land and we had never uh, been conquered. We were basically treated. <clears throat> so they were saying, in exchange for peace and friendship, we will sign these treaties with you. And uh, the native people said basically, uh, okay, but what we need is we need to maintain our way of life. We need to hunt and fish and gather the way we used to. Um, we don't have, uh, we don't recognize borders. Uh, territorial borders. Um, and that was the understanding that our people had. And um, <clears throat> later on, um, through legislation and history and what have you, they, uh, they wanted to make it a bit more uh, official. And um, when the provincial territories came about, <clears throat> they, they didn't know what to do with the um, how to deal with the native people because uh, a couple hundred years prior to that, um, we were hunting and fishing and gathering. We were um, all along the river, the rivers, which were our highways at the time. And 200 years later, we were still doing the same thing. <clears throat> so the provincial government was saying, well, we have to do something with all this land that the, the native people, are, they're not using it. So as my father was said, when he was young, he heard elders speaking of the time. So my father passed away in 2003, and he was 70, 77 years old. So when he was 10, he would have heard, heard stories from the elders that were alive when, the, uh, um, when these uh, government people came around the communities. They basically promised um, the Native people that in exchange for the, for the use of your land and your resources, we will collect a tax and um, you will become the wealthiest landowners. So of course the, the native people uh, agreed. And, uh, and my father talked about him sitting in on a meeting when he was a young boy and he heard elders uh, speaking of a place in Ottawa where the queen held monies for our people. And they were trying to devise a way to go to Ottawa and, and, and get some of this money because they were, back then, like I'm talking about the 20s and 30s, our people were probably the most um, dire, dire uh, shape they've ever been. They were, they were poor. They were, they were living in bad conditions and, and, and they were just basically starving and they were dying. And, and, and the elders were trying to come up with these ways. And they went back to the treaties and said, well, the, the settlers owe us money. They said they were going to co collect the monies on our behalf. 
And uh, that struck me because um, it, it was a visual picture for me. And, um, and still to this day, our people are still fighting um, for, for what's rightfully owed to our people, you know? So <clears throat> it's a long history. It's, um, it's, some of it is a very dark history. And, um, but, it, but it's, like I always say that the younger our leadership is, the further away they are from the history. So what was instilled in me as a young, young boy um, is not the same as what's instilled in somebody that's born, let's say, um, 10, 15 years ago, for instance. Um, for an example, uh, in 2000 or 1999, we basically uh, won in the Supreme Court of Canada the right to fish commercially, harvest uh, uh, seafood commercially. And um, so, there was a there was a big turmoil here there was a big big fight because right now you had a, a group of people who who are moving into an industry that's been uh, being developed in the past 30 40 50 years and now there's like there's hardly any room for for new new fishermen so the government had to do something and what they did is was they went to the communities and they had our people sign um fishing agreements <clears throat> yet we won the court case based on the rights, the treaty rights. So basically what you have is a situation where the government says, well, you, we're gonna put your treaty rights aside, and if you, if you fish based on these agreements that we're gonna draft up, uh, we'll, we'll give you money to, to uh, buy boats and, and, and get involved in the, in the fishing industry in a, in, a, in a more professional way. So a lot of our communities, well, most of our communities signed those agreements. Um, so that's what happened was, so now that was, uh, 1999, that was, uh, what, 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you have somebody that was born then who's fishing now, let's say they're 18, 19 years old. Their understanding is that they're fishing because the government gave us this agreement, um, uh, to be able to fish when in fact we're fishing because of a of a treaty right that was recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada. So you see how, how the information can be um, kind of um, minimized, I guess, or uh, it becomes something else. So those are the, some of the things that my father had, 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 had talked about. So now our people are, are still being charged. They're still being um, taken to court uh, for fishing against the agreements. Yet it's it's the treaty right that supersedes the agreement. So you have you have this kind of situation where um, we're 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 fighting in a in a in a system that doesn't even belong to us. It's foreign to us. A court system belongs to uh, Canada. Yet the treaties were signed with the British Crown prior to Canada being in existence. So we have that uh, we're in that situation where uh, we're kind of our, our our lives are being legislated by uh, a government that wasn't even here prior to the treaties. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because you're saying a lot of stuff that is making me 
think about origins of things. Um, you know, I studied uh, law and security when I went to college and looked up, you know, maritime sea law. And I was just Googling when you're talking like the origin of Canadian law. And I remember one of the concepts, and I wish I had my lawyer friend here to speak on it more eloquently. Um, but the idea that like you've got legislation that goes and it says you can do these things, right? But then you've got like uh, um, like law of God or law of the universe or whatever. And so you come in and you, you, you find like an indigenous group and you have this, it's basically made up rules that they're not a part of, but you make them sign these things. And then what is this like entity or this, you know, agreement? And plus you don't understand it too, right? And, and even myself, like I, I remember studying all this stuff and looking at like, why am I paying so much in taxes? Where does this come from? Why is it a dishonest system? Which it is to me, it's a very corrupt and dishonest system in general. That's just my personal view. Because, um, you know, and it's run and, and it makes no sense. And, you know, they legislate, legislate, legislate. And it's not for like, like I, I forget how to categorize it, but you can't go and, you know, murder your neighbor. That's square. You know, that should be a law. But there's other things where they, you know, will come in and add all these legislations, say, you can, you know, be in bed by nine or whatever the case is. Um, so, you know, being a First Nations and you're just sitting there and this group of people come in, get you to sign all these things. And then they, the other thing is they don't honor them. You know, it's like you, you make an agreement based on an understanding so there can be peace. And then it's continuous, uh, you know, dishonoring that agreement and then bringing, bringing you into, you know, red tape and baloney and legislation. So you can't just, you know, exist in a way that you um, existed for, was it hundreds of years, thousands of years? I don't know. Thousands. Thousands. Yeah. Peacefully. And the land was good, you know what I mean, <laughs> and which is incredible. Um, and so then, you know, we're not even talking about what I see is this systematic destruction of a culture. It's a genocide that's happening still to this day. And you live through that. Um, you know, you wrote a couple articles on the public school system, which, uh, which I have a big beef with the school system now as a white person, just as what I see being taught. And, and, you know, talk to the kids and how massive an upgrade is it available. We're not even talking about how you go in. And this was some of my personal study was looking at how, why we still had war. And then that, that, that showed how, how people would conquer other cultures. And so you were one of those cultures, which is terrible. And I'm, and I'm curious if you can speak on the public school system from your perspective or how that happened, you know, how it unfolded from your view. And then if there's any way that you see for a reconciliation or a way for us to start to move forward, make amends and start to build up um, and regain some of that lost history and culture. <clears throat> okay. Um, we have to go uh, back. Um, we, like I was saying, the, the, the plight of our people basically was determined by the laws the made up laws, I guess, or the new laws of, of a new country or a new entity that, that basically um, came along. And it's kind of, it's kind of bizarre when you think, think about it, but basically our people hunted and lived. Um, we were in the woods, we were by the waters. We, we did what we did for thousands of years, like just like geese migrate south and uh, whatever. That's what we did. We 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 were Mi'kmaq, the Mi'kmaq people of, of this area. So, 
you had the new new people who basically were trying to um, uh, settle the country, uh, the new land. It was uh, it was prime prime area, and everybody wanted it. And then one day we come out of the woods. We would meet these government people, and they would say, "This is your name now. This is your family name. Here is your number. This is a number that you have to um, uh, go by." course our people didn't understand what was going on um, and as time progressed uh, there was more interaction more um, I guess more uh, I don't know I don't I, I don't even know what the word to describe but in 16 let's say in 16 sorry in the 1600s um, you still see me um, in 1610 uh, one of our earlier leaders was um, baptized and basically that symbolized a I guess an acceptance um, to Christianity by our people um, and after that to me the um, basically the takeover pro progressed <clears throat> and about a hundred years later um, the, the treaties were signed and uh, everything that the native people did had to be approved by um, the minister of Indian affairs at that time everything um, we were placed on tracts of land that were basically lands that were not suitable I guess for anything else marshlands and just bad lands, I guess, and then they set those aside as as Indian reservations. Um, so when our people started having concerns, they um, they actually for, formalized, I guess, the um, they formalized the, the the way they were going to deal with our lands. And uh, I think it was 1844 when the provinces assumed control of crown lands. Um, they basically said we 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 are going to lease your lands now to farmers who want who wants who want tracts of lands to 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 farm. Since you're not using it, we will we will lease these lands to them. They will pay a a, a tax, and and that money will be yours. And they actually called it. Uh, they actually developed a, 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 a what they called as an Indian fund. So whenever they leased tracts of lands after 19, uh, 1844, these farmers basically would would lease, pay their lease money, and it would go to the government, and the government would hold it for our people. Uh, after two years, nobody was paying into this Indian fund, so they so they did away with it. Um, they 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 eliminated the the program. Yet the lease, they kept the leases. So now you had basically, um, I guess the the smoke. To me, it's, it's called, I call it the smoking gun because that's where they made a they had made an agreement with our people and they didn't they didn't honor it. But uh, but life went on and uh, basically our lives were regulated by this uh, the minister um, and this Department of Indian Affairs. And um, in the late 1800s, they um, they opened up schools on on reservations. Um, 
and a lot of our people some of some people went some people didn't go it wasn't it wasn't a big deal but uh, um, later on in the early 1900s there was basically um, a mission I guess for lack of a better term that the government would fund um, what what's known as residential schools so the churches were already in our communities so they would have um, basically government-funded church-operated uh, uh, schools, and they did. They they literally came to our communities and scooped children from uh, four years old, excuse me, to um, to anybody they saw on the street. If their parents didn't speak English, they would say that they were being raised in in um, they were being mistreated. So they literally took children from our homes, from our from our communities, and brought them to these uh, residential schools, where they some of them stayed from age four to age seventeen. Um, and probably the the worst things that um, could happen to uh, to a people happened um, in those schools. Um, there's horror stories that um, um, about what happened and and. About 15, 20 years ago, there was a settlement, um, what they refer to as the survivors of the residential schools, um, <clears throat> where uh, they were given uh, basically uh, an amount of money um, for what they endured. The thing was that in order for them to receive this money, they had to sign uh, documents that said that they were not allowed to speak of what happened to them. So, so to me, it was like a shut up money sort of thing. And um, so, so they're trying to erase that part of our history. Um, and right now, there's, there's very few of uh, The last one uh, in, in Atlantic Canada, I think, shut down as recently as 1996. So we had these residential schools. But in... In, in the communities, we had what they called Indian day schools. So basically, it was the same kind of a school, but we got to go home at, at night. Um, whereas the residential school, they lived there. They, they were like, a, it was like a, like a dorm. And, and that's where, that's where the, the kids, and there, and there were thousands of our people that went to these schools. So right now, we have actually, a, currently right now, we have a, a court case. Um, it's a lawsuit against the federal government and uh, uh, about the Indian residential uh, Indian day schools because some of the same abuses happened uh, to a lot of our people in the schools um, within the community. <clears throat> so, but their mission was basically to civilize um, the Indian people, to remove all that is native. And, and instill in them or to groom them to become model citizens or Canadians, let's say. Um, they, they, they beat the children for speaking the language. And it was interesting because I heard an elder say um, that the language is who you are as a people. So that's why they attacked it with such vigor. 
because they basically wanted to kill uh, the people. If they killed the language, they would kill the people. Um, so you have to think when 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 this mission was happening, they they didn't think that we would still be here um, today to, to talk about these things. But when you look at the situation today, you're um, in our in our community, for instance, we probably have. If I said fifty percent of our people spoke the language, that would be generous, because it's been it's been uh, going downhill for the last last twenty years. It's been like rapidly going down. Like uh, another elder says that our our languages are in on skid row, so we're like we're we're dying. We're 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 basically dying. So in twenty five years, you you wouldn't have a young person that spoke the language. So to me, I would say, did they accomplish the mission? On what they set out to do, right? We no longer pray in our language. We no longer um, sing in our language. Very few speak the language, um, and it was so so uh, vital, so important on on who we were. And um, again, I, I, another elder that I spoke to says, "When your children no longer dream in their language." Your language is gone, which which struck me like I like so, like we're so we're so busy trying to survive that we don't see our death, you know, our people are literally dying and um and in more ways than one because the social conditions on our communities is so bad, um you know chronic alcohol and drug abuse we have uh, high the highest rate of suicides, and to me it leads to a cultural identity. We don't fit in outside the community and we don't fit in inside because we don't know who we are. We don't know how to be Indian, let's say. Um, and that's where the problem is. Um, and I, I, I really can't, the only, the only thing I can, I can see is, is, is immersion, language immersion. Um, if we introduce that within our, within our schools, um then 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 the young people would have a grasp on 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 the language right now they have um what do you call those things uh, language courses but they 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 talk about phrases they talk about objects you know words here and there but if you're a, if you're a speaker of the language you you understand the um I guess the complexities or, 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 or it's a beautiful language. It's, it lives as you speak the language. It's, it's actually a living language. <clears throat> so you have to think like myself, I, I think in my language, then I have to translate. That's why I have a, because Mi'kmaq is my first language. So, but somebody who, let's say if I taught you, for instance, you come here and, and, and you speak, uh, I can speak, you can speak, Mi'kmaq just as good as anybody else, but you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't understand where the root, the words are coming from, the roots of the words, and and like, and there's combinations of how they interact with one another. Like, uh, just just sometimes you add um, a little phrase at the end of somebody's. Let's let's say, for instance, for example, we'll use Elvis. When I talk about Elvis, 
as a person who's alive. When we're when we when we're speaking in the language, you'll know that he's alive. But when I say Elvis O, right there tells you that that person that I'm referring to has passed on. So you have these little um, uh, I don't know what to call those, um, but but just how you speak the language is is uh, determines you know uh, how you understand the language. <clears throat> You said so much there that I want to touch on in it. And I think that you are sharing it in a way that I view as a, um, just really incredible. Your amount of, uh, I don't know, it's, patience isn't the word, but like putting it softly. Because I'm aware of what happened only to a degree. And it's, it's brutal. It's absolutely disgusting. It's brutal. It's sinister. It's calculated. Um, and because I was curious about that, I studied that and I had a, a man on named, uh, Bayo Akamalafe and he's from Africa uh, He's a PhD. He's a psychologist. He's incredible. And, uh, again, he talked about the uh, basic genocide of his culture when the Westerners came over and they're trying to help, right? And how do they help you? They help you in two ways. Number one, they help you with spirituality because you're of the land. Obviously you don't know God and, and spirituality and Jesus. So we're going to help you with that. And that's sarcasm for anybody who doesn't know that for sure. It's definitely sarcastic. You know what I mean? Um, so they're going to help you with the church and a, and a way to understand God. Um, then they're going to help you with language and destroy your culture. And he told me that um, when he was a kid, um, they were encouraged to speak like, you know, the British news reporter. That was the cool way. If you're speaking, you know, the way that you grew up and, and the way your parents and your grandparents, that was actually... It's, it's like 1984 George Orwell. Um, and then, uh, well, there's a couple of things I want to kind of say. Number one is like, can you, because people have no idea what happened in the res residential school systems. Do you have, can you share some of the things that happened in possible numbers? Like, you know, and I know you, you probably didn't want to do that, but maybe even just a generalized so people kind of have an idea because a lot of people have no idea what happened. They, they, they literally this is going to be the first time they're hearing it and they're going to think it's impossible. So please look it up, do your own research, figure it out on your own. Um, and then the second thing is um, your language. Do you know how old it is? And um, maybe you can like speak a little bit of it. And maybe when we're done, I'm already thinking about what can we do systematically to preserve the language? Because I 100% agree the importance of preserving the language is paramount. And I think that coming up with a strategy to do that I'm actively working and figuring out um, David Lohenbeer, who um, is a Mi'kmaq elder and, and someone that you've been uh, studying with and um, listening to uh, as well. He told me that your language is closer to dolphin than it is to English. And uh, I thought that was a very interesting thing to say to me. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Uh, well, as far as numbers, um, you, when you when, when you look at the residential school system, the numbers are on they're available online. Um, I just know they're in the thousands. Um, I've personally um, one of the, my first documentaries that I did. Um, I'm going back to your point of, oh, a while back. I I've <clears throat> I've actually done seventy um, over seventy half hour documentaries on our people, and I have. Um, Two feature-length films that I've uh, that I've produced and directed. <clears throat> so one of the first. I, I normally don't stop people when they're going, but where can people access those anywhere? Um, some of it is online. Um, 
um, I don't know, maybe <laughs> sometimes I'm too humble. Like I, I, maybe I should have posted all my work online or I, I never did that. I never, I never, um, I think I only have like maybe 13, uh, the last, the last season of the last series, um, they're available online under Wabanagi TV. Um, so, um, yeah, so going back to my point, one of my first programs I did was a, um, uh, I interviewed three um, survivors of the residential school and they, and they, and they talked and they, they, they shared, they opened, they, they were honest. <clears throat> and it was just so um, incredible what, the, what the, the, the information they shared. And uh, I was working with a non-native uh, producer at the time, a co-producer. And he said, Brian, he said, I want you to get me seven or eight people that, that, um, that are willing to share their uh, experiences in residential schools. And I thought about it. I said, why do we need that many? He said, we're going to feature three of them. And I said, well, I don't, I don't feel right in doing that because does that mean that the four that we're not going to use, their stories weren't gripping enough or, or terrible enough that we we're not going to use them. <clears throat> anyway, I, I argued my point and we did, we interviewed three and we profiled three and those were the stories that we used. The problem we had was insurance uh, because of the, um, the business, I guess the nature of the business, we, we needed insurance because these people were naming names of people that um, abuse them. So we wouldn't be insured. And I, I, was, I remember being kind of upset about it because in a way it's, it's that, um, it's another way of keeping them quiet, keeping the truth from the people. Uh, we were fortunate enough that APTN, the broadcaster, uh, insured the episode and it was aired once um that, and that was the extent of it so basically the system was successful in keeping the uh keeping the people quiet um keeping the this part of history um under wraps just like when they um just like their um settlements if, if you know it how can you put a value on that and then tell them, well, we'll give you this and, and as long as you don't tell anybody about it, <clears throat> it's, it's just not right. <clears throat> so, um, so the other point was the language. Uh, oh, and uh, going back to residential school, I, I can only say that the worst that you can imagine happened to our people. It was, it was bad. Um, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody's child. Uh, doesn't matter who what your background is or who you are or nobody should go through that um, the other thing is that has to be looked at is what they refer to as the doctrine of discovery um, I did some research on that and um, I wanted to do a, a four-part documentary on 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 our people um, and I called it the original people but one of the things I wanted to highlight was What's, what's known as the doctrine of discovery. And to me, it's basically a license to kill. Um, 
they use this to justify the invasion of countries, invasion of people. And if they stood in the way of progress, um, they, they were justified in killing these people. And I think that that is a, I, I, I don't think that should exist, that, that document. And I, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it, it stems from uh, the church, I think. <clears throat> and um, that's how they, they justify taking over people's lands. And um, that's partly of how they, how they came here and what they did, they did what they did because of that. So, um, but going back to the language, it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult predicament that we're in because I've had a lot of people say, uh, what can we do to help, help your language, help you keep that language? <clears throat> and, and it's, it's, I think it's, it's sad. It's a sad thing to say, but I think it's too far gone. Um, there's entire sectors of our language that are, that have, that we're not using. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, when we went hunting in the woods, uh, we would know each tree, the name of each tree. Um, we would know uh, names of how a certain way the sun rises, or or a certain way the sun shines, or what season it is, and and all that. Those aren't used anymore because our people don't hunt anymore. They don't they don't hunt for survival uh, like they used to. Um, the tides, for instance, the water, how, how uh, when the tide comes in, when the tide goes out, when the fish run and all that, there was names for each, each sector and each uh, event uh, in nature. And, and now we don't know those. We, 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 we speak in very general terms. Uh, for instance, uh, <clears throat> when we go into the forest, we say, El Daik Nibuktuk. So when you say Nibuktuk, that's that's the forest. But when you're in the in the forest and you wanna you wanna you need a you need to make a shelter, what for instance you and you want the alder, for instance, um, we call it dupsi or a stone or a midi. <clears throat> All these individual species of trees, we no longer use them. Um, the names because we, we're not in the woods anymore. We're not out on the water anymore. Uh, basically, we're, we're being sucked down the tube of progress, I guess, if, if, I, if I can call it that. But our people are just existing in a world that we, it's not ours. It, it's foreign to us. Uh, the language is foreign. The, the, the principles are foreign. Like, it, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how if we can recover from this. Uh, well, well, that's rough. It's not really ideal at all. Um, the follow-up question I was curious about is, um, what are the biggest problems that that the Native Americans in Canada or the U.S. face right now, and um, and do what does reconciliation mean to you, and uh, what steps could we take to 
um, begin to recover at full steam. I remember the only comment I'll say is interviewing Clifford Mahuti, who's a Zuni elder, and uh, speaking about the Indian, it was the Indian Act in the school system as well, and what had happened, and he lived through that as, as well. And, uh, you know, he down, he didn't, it's not that you're downplaying it, it's just that you're not giving all the gory details of how absolutely atrocious it was and is. And, and from my view of understanding systems and looking at the history in the way that I know how, which is not, you know, I don't know if it's the best way. I just figured out some stuff. Um, but I see that there's systems of this. It was a system of, uh, you know, taking people's culture. You look at the education system now and they say, Christopher Columbus discovered America. Did he? You know, it's, it's from one point of view, it's empowering to a whole group of people and to another group it's like what are you talking about like how about we share what the and that's what the truth is with a capital t you know and i think that there's a that goes so deep um and i think that you know the native american culture and history that we need to figure out what those truths are and um yeah i'll just say that well that's a big <clears throat> that's a big um topic i guess and I'm sure you've heard of uh, the government's mandate of truth and reconciliation, um, which was based on a, um, I don't know what they call that, but an inquiry. And they came up with these 94 um, recommendations um, on how we can achieve truth and reconciliation. But is truth and reconciliation based on their terms? Unless mainstream society is willing to accept the truth, um, then there can be no reconciliation. And you're also saying reconciliation because that means that we can fix, um, we can, we can, I guess, coexist <clears throat> in a in a positive way. But I think what we have to do is we have to go back and begin to right some of those wrongs, um, and mainstream society has to accept the responsibility of some of those wrongs. Um, I guess saying I'm sorry third hand doesn't really cut it. Um, the, 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 um, going back to the treaties and the, uh, the promises, I guess, of, of um, collecting the money for the, for the native people so that they'd be uh, well off. I think that's one of the things we have to address. Um, do we need to, I guess, uh, does a payment fix things? I don't think so, because there's so much damage that's been done. <clears throat> um, a lot, I know in the early 60s, a lot of times the government <clears throat> would think that putting money into a, the Indian problem was gonna solve things, but it only makes things worse, you know, like when you take something from a people and you, and, and you take and take and take away from them, and then you offer something. Well, when, when you have nothing, you're going to accept something, you're going to accept anything. Right. So I think that's, that's where, that's where we were. And that's where we still are. We have so little, our communities are in such dire um, conditions that our leadership, and we can't blame them, they're going to say, well, this is going to work for our people. Our people need this. Our, our people need housing. Our people need health care. Our people need education. Our people need businesses. This, this amount of money is going to help us do that. But you have to, you have to um, 
train people on how to accept that. We, you know, we can't, we can't cut off, I guess, the, the, the remaining, uh, what's remaining of our people. Um, where the Aboriginal and treaty rights stem from is who we are. And for them to say, okay, we're going to make some new treaties and we're going to pay you, I don't know what amount, exorbitant amount of money so that your communities will flourish. We, we can't do that. Like our souls are not for sale. You know, our homeland is not for sale. When, when um, for example, for instance, if, if the French were losing their language and their culture, they can always go back to France and, and relearn it and bring it back. But when we, as the original people of this homeland, our homeland, when we lose our culture, when we lose our prayers, when we lose our language, where do we go? We have no place to go because we're here. This is where we're from. This is our homeland. The language we speak is the language of our mother and, 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 and their mother. And, 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 and like, we, like we said, thousands and thousands of years. When I speak the language, I know that the language that I'm using are the same words that my ancestors used 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. And that, that's, that's so important. That, and and for, for me to see that it, it's, it's, it's on the verge of dying, it, it's just a sad, a sad situation. You know, what can we do? What can our children do? Because that language was instilled in me. Um, that's why it's strong. But if, but the next generation, if they learn it, if it's not inherent in them, then it makes it um, not so strong. You know what I mean? So we're, yeah. we're just, um, I don't know, I don't know where we can go from here or what we can do. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really disheartening to hear that. Um, and again, you know, speaking with Clifford Mahoudi, it was uh, the same idea where where he was talking about um, when he was a kid. You know, he's just like when you're a kid and your grandpa's sitting you down and telling you stories. And he's like, I just wanted to go out and play, and he'd get mad at me. <laughs> and he's like, I understand that now because I try to sit down my grandkids and they just want to go play, and I get mad at them. <laughs> and uh, and you know. But now we're at this point where it's almost like the last generation holding that language where you've actually embodied it. You know, you're teaching it firsthand from the original source or from, you know, a place where right now, you know, you look at the English language and it's a silly analogy, but like you've got everything shortened, like LOL and all the stupid memes and how kids communicate. The language is is different here. So I can't imagine what would happen there, you know, really losing it from the original source and how important that is and you know when you speak about um losing your prayers your spiritual connection i think that that is uh extremely disheartening as well and dreaming in another language it's so fascinating uh to hear that because it you know there's something mm, i i don't know primal is not the word but just like to the core essence of how important that is and you come in you know and you conquer, which is what, what their job was. Is it well, not their job, their intention was, you know, you said at, at the beginning where the French were, were there and um, they originally came and you helped them survive and you're looking at this new culture and you think, okay, like they're here, they, they probably shouldn't die. Let's help them out. Then another group comes and it's like, Oh, you didn't take their land. You take their stuff. 
Obviously, you take their stuff, so then you conquer the French because they're dumb because they didn't take their stuff, right? And then, oh, there we go. Now let's hoard all this stuff. Now we've got the British Empire, and then they basically run Canada through these pieces of paper and legislations that require me to go to a government building to do all, all kinds of crap, which is ridiculous and way too far. And it's, again, I'm not going to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but it's dishonest. And, um, you know, you look at your culture and, and – um, you know, basically it's the old analogy of teach a man to fish and you, you have a life. And so it's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do the complete opposite of that. We're going to make sure that they already know how to live, how to exist, how to thrive. Let's systematically disseminate that, have them forget their history, including the language, um, which if you came over, you wouldn't think would be possible unless you orchestrated it in a very intelligent manner to be able to dismantle that. Um, you would have to do that. And so now that this is the result of that and, and what do we do and, and how do we, you know, if there's a way to, you know, preserve this. And I think that it's our responsibility, anybody he hearing this, um, whoever you are to just, I don't know, educate yourself and, and maybe think about it a little bit, because this is, I think that the information that you guys hold um, and have in your histories from what I've learned from David, what I've learned from uh, Clifford Mahuti, what I've learned from the Mayan elder, um, just old knowledge. And um, David and I went to the Parliament of World Religions, a 212 distinct religious face. Um, the oldest one, I think, is 2300. Is it Zoroastrian is one of the older ones? And uh, like Hinduism is pretty old. Uh, so maybe somebody out there can write that out. I Googled it once and I forget, but those are two of the oldest ones. Your history crushes that by like 18,000 years. And so what happens when you're living on the earth and then all of a sudden people exist and say, oh, you know what? Actually, it's this God out here. That's the one you need to worship and we're going to conquer Africa, uh, North America. Oh, you know, we've got some savages here. Let's conquer them and, and bring in churches and all this stuff. What you're bringing in is like basically the Roman Empire. And if you're, you know, it's hard, it's hard because like I know really amazing Christians. I know really amazing uh, people of different faiths, Muslims, and I like them. They're good people. But I'm also curious about where did those religions come from? What do those religions stand for? Um, how does it improve your quality of life and connection to spirit? And if we're talking about God, where it's like Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, whoever, like you could say ascended master. You could also say, you know, when you're talking about God, it could be like, uh, you know, the lucky charms guy or Santa Claus or whatever, because nobody has seen him physically. They, they'll talk about the spirit of nature and force. And I understand that. Um, but when you put rules and regulations down on the piece of paper that I have to follow to connect with this thing, I think it gets a little bit um, murky. And from what I've learned from David and a few others, it's, uh, you know, when you're living in the land, the closest I've ever been to God personally is always when I'm in nature. It's when I'm, when I'm in nature, when I'm connected with myself and my environment and, uh, you know, it's all life, it's all things. And so I don't need to do a certain protocol to connect to that thing. So that's quite a rant there. Um, what I wanted to ask is you can either speak about anything that I just said, or, you know, what is your view on, on spirituality and like the role of religion compared to, you know, Native American uh, core values? Well, um, I was raised um, Roman Catholic um, because that, that's what was in our community. Um, there's, a, there's a church in almost every Native community in our, in our, in our region. And as a young man, I never... I didn't like going to church, but I was forced to go to church because we had to. Um, 
it was only after I started understanding who I was as a Mi'kmaq person. And it was only after I attended my first sweat lodge ceremony. And surprisingly, I was like probably 27 years old when I first entered a sweat lodge. And as corny as it may be, it was as if somebody switched on that proverbial light. Even though I was in the dark, I saw, I saw this is where, this is what I've been missing. This is what my life's been missing. This is who I am. And since that time, um, I've been following these ways for about 20, 26, 27 years. I, uh, now when I go to a church, I know how to pray. So it's not as bad as it was when I was younger because I didn't know how to pray. Now I understand prayer, what it is. Uh, I can pray here. I can pray outside. I can pray anywhere. And the same reasons that you are comfortable um, outside with the elements, you're connecting to who you are. Man has a makes a mistake of trying to remove himself from nature when we're only a part of it. So it's when we're connected to, to all of creation. See, that's spirituality. Every, everything has a spirit. When we enter into a sweat lodge and the grandfathers, the rocks, are seen as elders and they go in before us because those rocks have been here longer than any of us. They know what's, what, they're wise. They know everything that's been going on. So we honor that. We respect that. To a person who doesn't follow these ways, they would say, they're just rocks, you know? But just, it's so much more. Um, our very being, our connectedness, I think, that's where, that's where we have a hard time to understand um, People like David, for instance, people have a hard time to grasp what he's saying. But it makes so much sense when you begin to understand, when you, when you, when you listen, I guess. And he'll be the first one to say, don't listen to me. Listen, listen to yourself. You know, the, the healing, you're the teacher, you're the one that knows, because we're all connected in that way. I, I recently um, came from London. Uh, with the star, star teaching uh, people. And it really opened my eyes because the UK, the, I guess the British, are the ones that we signed the treaties with. And I asked around, and nobody knows anything about the Mi'kmaq people. Nobody knows anything about the treaties that were signed in 1725 to 1767. So that tells me, you know, when, when, when to me, those treaties are our, our survival, our, our, that's, that's our salvation. And when the, the people that we signed the treaties, the, the signatories of the treaties don't even know anything about us, we have, a, we have a tough battle ahead of us because they're the ones that were supposed to be responsible for, for us, our, 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 our livelihood, our well, well-being, our they made an agreement with our people and they don't even know anything about us. You know, so, so 
how how do we how do we protect that? How do we make sure that they live up to the the the, the promises that were made to our people? Um, because we we're we're gonna lose everything. We're gonna lose our very existence if those things are not honored, if those things are not recognized. And and our spirituality was part of that. It went along with that. It's who we are. Our our language is who we are. We say in our language when we say "entlisudi," it means my voice. It doesn't mean language. It means the words that I speak. Um, Wilnu is the tongue of your mother, and that those are the things that we're 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 gonna lose if 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 something is not done. You know, um, our leadership is not, it's part of that foreign system that was imposed upon us. It has nothing traditional, it has nothing spiritual in there. It's basically the same form of government as uh, the city of Moncton has, for instance. It has a, uh, a, a, I say a chief and council, but it has a mayor and a council. And that's the same system we have within our communities. Only thing is we, we call our mayor the chief. But there's nothing traditional, there's nothing spiritual in that organization. The true leadership is with people like um, David, people like Clifford, people like uh, uh, my, my brother-in-law here is William Nevins, who, does, who is the Sundance leader here. He's our spiritual elder. To me, those are the warriors that we need to bring um, to save our people. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. You know, we, we, first we need to recover that. We need to find those connections to the stars or to the stones or to the trees or to what, to whatever. It's who we were and it's how we were, how we prayed that we need to, um, to recover that in order for us to strengthen, pass that on and strengthen our young people to be, to be able to, um, to protect the next seven generations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with all that. And you kind of ended on one thing that was interesting um, saying to um, you say, protect the next seven generations. That's a common thing, right? To think seven generations down the line, not just for yourself. Where does that come from? It's a, uh, it's an inherent teaching, I guess. Um, we, um, we tend to think for now, but if our people thought, if they taught, if they thought that way, then they wouldn't have signed a treaties, um, 350 years ago. They knew that those treaties would protect the people living now. So we can't let that end now. So we, we still have to protect the children that are not born yet. We don't have a right to sign away their homeland or their rights that they have that, that come from the creator. We don't have any right to sign that, sign that away. Um, the bureaucrats assume they, ha they have that right, and they, uh, but it's, it's wrong, it's illegal. To me, anything, anything, other than the treaties 
uh, that were signed, they're, they're illegal because they, they have no jurisdiction to sign those. Um, the treaties were signed as with the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, Pasmaquoddy, Penobscot as nations because treaties can only be signed between two nations. Anything after that, they're just, it's just paper. They're just agreements. They're, they're, um, and, and, and they, they really don't hold any water if you go back to the treaties and say, well, this is the jurisdiction that I fall under. Even the Supreme Court of Canada, there was no Canada back then. So why are you bringing my treaty rights into a court system that isn't even um, mine? I shouldn't even be in that court. Yet they do. They, well, I mean, I mean, and there are people are going to court every day, you know. Yeah, and that gets into a huge bag of worms that I I would love to have a proper lawyer on because it is seemed like a legal operation. How do they uh, bring that in? I remember researching law, and when I was doing law and security in uh, in college, they would talk about. Um, well, I learned about uh, your your birth certificate as just a Canadian citizen and even Amer- as, as like the same protocol as a shipping container receipt where that's how they can, you know, mat as the identity, not as like the sovereign being because it's a bit ludicrous. Like if you look at uh, like a bird or a duck or a moose, you can't tax it. it it's, it's operating on natural law. And so what is the difference between natural law and um, maritime sea law, I think it is, and, and the actual difference and how they can um, somehow through bureaucracy and legislation um, get you to agree to these things. And it seems to be agreements of like, oh, okay, I'm going to sign this. But then even if you, you don't, they use coercive tactics. You know, it's like, oh, well, this is the thing that we need to make it legit. Okay, cool. Most people are signing it, but not everybody. Here's some coercive tactics or let's pay them off or whatever the strategy is to make it quote unquote legal in this system that's literally fabricated by a group of people. And I remember learning one thing about law is saying like sometimes, you know, the reason why you need a lawyer is because they make it so freaking confusing. Um, One word that you think will mean one thing means something else. So if law were about justice and freedom, it would make perfect logical sense. You know, it's like, okay, so we're at court and you came over to this guy's house and you uh, stole all of his stuff. You know, that's probably shouldn't do that. You know, might want to give it back. Um, But even a culture where, um, you know, you're, you're completely sovereign individually through the community and, uh, you know, and everywhere around. And what happens is when people are trying to take stuff from you, that's when you need legislation because it's, it's unfair. You, you know, people have a moral code um, and it's getting disintegrated through baloney and people trying to conquer other people. Um, which is basically the entire human history as far as I know. Um, and we're still in the middle of it today. Um, do you want to comment on any of that? I don't, I don't know. I was just ranting. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, it's, it's a complex um, situation and it's, it's like a different world. I see it as a different world. Um, and we have to, we have to, uh, we sort of have to live in both worlds. Um, you know, when the treaties were signed, it came, it came with these um, wampum symbols where there was two parallel lines. And the, 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 the analogy, I guess, behind that was that they would live in their world and we would live in our world. And those two worlds will never intersect. So basically, we were operating under uh, freedom. And um, now we basically have to, we have to go in 
their world for us to, to, to survive because otherwise we wouldn't have anything. Um, and the legal, the legal standpoint is it, it's, it's hard for anybody who, to comprehend because it's the justification. In order for, for the legal system, for your, let's say the lawyers to understand, they can't because then they have to leave their world to listen to our argument. And that throws everything out the window because they, they go by what, this, what they refer to as case law. So almost every, every situation with a native person that takes it to the court almost has to be precedent because everything that we're arguing, somebody might've said that in 1949 or whatever, and it's case law and they have to go by that. Well, it's not the same situation. So again, we're, we're being, we're being um, guided by, uh, by, by written, written things. It's, it's so far removed from the natural, from the natural law that it, it's, it just makes it, um, makes it impossible. Um, the reason why Canada is an entity, the reason why the legal system is an entity, they're corporations that don't have heart, they don't have conscience, they don't have feelings. And that's the only way they can do what they do. Otherwise, a human, a human being can't do that. So we deal with, you have a situation where you have people that, that are natural, that go by natural law, trying to, trying to fight a system where, where, where it's, it's not human. It's not, it's not possible for those two worlds to, um, to interact with one another, let alone understand each other. So it's, 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 and that, that, that doesn't only apply to native people, it applies to everybody. You know, um, we're being, we're being directed, uh, you know, it's society. When you look at society, you, you see people in the city, people are ru rushing, going, where are they going? You know, they don't even have time for themselves let alone raise their families, let alone interact with their children, let alone go out in a park and, 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 and I don't know, feel the grass on their feet. You know, they, we're, we're disconnected from, from spirituality. And that's, that should be the reason why we exist. Our people never did anything without spirituality. They always had ceremony before everything. You know, marriages, uh, social gatherings, uh, weddings, uh, uh, even war. They had, they had a ceremony before, before embarking on anything. And that's connecting with spirituality. That's, spirit, that's connecting with your past, you know? And, 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 and we're, we've all lost that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I, I really like, uh, I think you made two really important points saying like, you know, you the wampum line thing is a very fascinating uh, piece of information. Um, having two different worlds and that's the understanding is that you're going to live in your world in the way, in your way of life. And you're going to allow them to live in their world and their way of life. And, you know, we do not require meeting that. And all of a sudden over time, probably the conquerors, because which if you're conquering, 
um, nations, you learn how to do this. Um, they're thinking three, four generations. And now that I'm older, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, it's actually not that hard to change and conquer a whole entire culture. Well, it is, and it isn't though, because then you could take like education and there's this Aristotle quote that I've been um, referencing quite a bit. And it says, uh, you know, where is it? I'm going to find it here. Give me a child until he is seven and I will show you the man. And that's because when you educate children, it's very hard to um, change that programming from that age. And that's essentially why you fund schools and education than religion. You have to give them um, some sort of higher power and spiritual belief. Um, and then, bam, you got them. And that's where if you look up the Council of Nicaea, and that's the origins of the Bible, and that's the Roman Empire figuring out how to conquer um, you know, different groups of people at that time because they had different spiritual beliefs, and you need to uh, combine them. And that's where it came from. And that's, you know, that's not even disputable. I haven't seen any information out there where they say, no, that's not real. Like, no, no, we agree on that. That's actually what happened. So you can look that up and it's really important information. Um, and then I think that you said another really important thing. And this is something that I feel is like, you know, we're living in a very unnatural way of life. And what we're, what we're competing with is this, this is entity that doesn't have a heart or soul or spirit. It's, it's imaginary created by it's just all of this imaginary stuff and agreement you know and i was like i never signed up for this this doesn't this doesn't you know align with my morality there's this is off you know and you're forced to play that game to live in society and where is that coming from and what's the agenda of this entity that has no heart that has no spirit that's literally this corporation and through legislation and bureaucracy and basic baloney um we're forced as a people to uh, you know, playing it even as a white person and even, you know, more so for you, it would be even more extreme. Mm. So, yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> that's, that's where we are. Oh my goodness. Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing. I know that um, you'd like to stay quiet and you've done some incredible work. I, I think you've shared a lot of amazing things and amazing insights. And I invite people to just, you know, look deeper into some of these concepts and uh, open up your eyes a little bit, open up your hearts a little bit and just, um, yeah, just ponder some of the ideas you may have heard today. And um, I want to ask you, you know, you can feel free to elaborate as long as you wish. Is there anything that I wish um, you wish that I had asked you? Or is there anything that you want to talk about? And if there is, feel free to you know, go on as long as you like. Well, it's, um, a lot of times, um, I myself personally, I feel alone because um, I, there's very few people that I that I come across that that share these things. Um, we have we have our warriors, we have our um, you know bursts of Indian pride when when we stand up and rise against pipelines against. Uh, uh, resource extraction against uh, pollution or whatever. Um, that's fine. That's that's we need to do that uh, as our role um, in 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 saving Mother Earth. But if we don't save ourselves, then then that's gone anyway. You know. So we have to we have to save ourselves first. We have to make strengthen ourselves. And uh, like my father always said, before you go out to fight. Try to understand what you're fighting, you know. So, if if we're fighting resource extraction, we have to understand the politics behind that. 
the people that are extracting the resources, they're not doing it uh, just for fun. They get, they're doing it for money. So, but where, where is the money coming from? Where is the permission, permission coming from for them to do that, the licensing and all that? It stems from the politics. So, that, so now you have to understand the politics behind all these things that you're fighting for. We just can't say, no, you can't do that. You know, and we can't fight the people that are doing it because it's not, they're only doing their job. So we have to go further than that. Now you're, now you're, you're into the politics. Now you're into the politicians. Um, now you're into legislation. Now you're into policy. You have, you have, you have to understand all that stuff. So, so we, that's where the changes have to begin. Um, you know, so all I see is our people being criminalized um, by trying to fight, by trying to protect um, what needs to be protected. Um, but you can't fight that fight if you're behind bars, and, and that's what the system does. It, it makes you criminals uh, when you're trying to protect what's yours. And we're not only trying to protect it for us, we're trying to protect it for everybody. Because we all have a role in, 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 you know, we're at the end of the day, we're all going to the same place. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire or if you're, if you're, uh, if you're a person on the street, we're all going to end up in the same place. So I think we need to um, try to bring those worlds a little bit closer together and try to understand, um, you know, foster an understanding of, uh, of uh, humanness, I guess. And, 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 just sharing and caring and, and, and trying to understand your fellow man, doesn't matter who it is. I think that's, that's, that's important. And, and, and Dave's mission about trying to reach those 7 million lights, I always say, you know, it's, when you look at it, it's so, it's so um, almost like an impossible task. And I, and I, and I, I commend David so much for, for him trying, you know, he's, he's, he's fighting uh, a big battle. But he can't do it without all of us, you know. If we can, if we can bring that light to uh, 10, 12, 15 people, if we all did that, then then that seven million isn't uh, too far off, you know. Isn't isn't that hard to uh, achieve? So I think that's all we can do for now is that um, begin with ourselves and 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 try to make your life better. Try to tr try to live a good life. Uh, and, and then share it and then and then spread spread that and then hopefully the next person sees it and then eventually it'll filter down to the children who may become politicians of the future and then they may see what's wrong with the system awesome really really well put really beautiful words i appreciate that um Thank you so much for everything that you shared. Thank you for uh, the work that you're doing. And um, where can people find more about you? Maybe watch some of those uh, videos that you made and, and just kind of, if they want to educate themselves, where should they go? Um, yeah, I guess, uh, like I said, Wabanagi TV will bring you some, to some of my shows. Um, I really, <laughs> there's not really much about me, really. Um, I'm just me. Uh, so, uh, if you can get a hold of me, like find me, and if you want to talk to me, whatever. Um, I guess social media is the uh, the best place. Awesome. 
Well, I appreciate you coming on and, and all your work. And I'm definitely going to sh- uh, check out a few of those documentaries myself. So uh, thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing. Thank you, Matt. Take care. My pleasure. See Good you guys. To be. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. All right, guys, that wraps up this amazing episode with Brian Francis. I hope that you enjoyed it and that you learned a lot. I know that I did. I've been learning so much more about the residential school systems, the atrocities, learning more about treaties versus, uh, you know, I did law and security in in, uh, college, and I learned a lot about how our laws are just kind of like legislation paid to a banker that you're uh, freaking your birth certificate is a shipping container receipt, uh, maritime sea law, all kinds of stuff that basically, you know, we're getting these kind of tyrannical legislations now, you know, to everyone and especially to the native Americans. So, uh, there's a lot of interesting, uh, information out there i invite you guys to watch the zeitgeist documentaries if you haven't seen those uh, zeitgeist addendum um so there's a lot of messed up stuff on this planet and we if we can open our eyes and we can work together as a community as people and be kind to each other um hopefully we can rectify some of these situations and we can stop the uh current atrocities that are going on now and make a positive impact for our kids in the future and learn how to get along nicely planetary peace would be beautiful to see in our lifetime and it should be possible if we could be responsible human beings a little bit more kind a little bit more compassionate so um i appreciate brian sharing his history and uh, coming on the show i hope that you enjoyed it for those of you guys who are interested in um, some coaching some speaking some training for you for your staff for your corporation um anything like that hit me up matt at zenathlete.com there are a lot of different uh programs and applications that we can do to improve your organization your life so whether it's one-on-one speaking or group let me know know happy to help you out just go to matt at zenathlete.com so thank you guys so much for listening have an incredible day and uh, let's just wrap this up by coming to a state of peace and coherence so wherever you are just stop what you're doing taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and just let it out slowly setting your intention to come to peace contentment empowerment positivity and ready to take on the rest of the day so thank you so much for listening and i will see you in the next episode